Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diva. Hello. In the studio with us today is Dr. Daniel Vella from the Institute of Digital Games. Hi, a pleasure to be here. Where did your interest in philosophy come about since you are an expert in game studies? Well, one thing we say within game studies as a discipline is that inherently as a field it is multidisciplinary. Everyone comes into digital game studies from different previous areas of expertise. In my case, I came into game studies from literature and philosophy. My first my academic background before going on to study games was literature and philosophy and that was the kind of perspective which I brought to digital games from the start, right? I was already interested in looking at games as cultural artifacts, as an interesting new kind of experience. So my interest was inherently in how can we understand these games from a, or these experiences that these games give us from a philosophical perspective or from a cultural perspective. Who is your favorite philosopher, if I may ask? Uh, that's a big question. I'm not sure if I have one. I have a few and it, it depends. That's basically the ones that I've been working with quite closely. If I were to answer it right now, then I would say just name one Eugen Fink, and it's because I've been looking at his work quite closely, both for the for this current research and for some other projects. Are there any contemporary philosophers who kind of feed back into the study of games uh, nowadays and discuss uh, video games that you use in your research? Um, absolutely. I've just recently been reading the Korean-born German philosopher Byung-Jul Han's book Psychopolitics, where he actually talks about Uh, gamification as one of the contemporary and neoliberal technologies of power. And that's an, a perspective on games and the significance of games within the contemporary sphere, which I found to be quite uh, new and challenging. So definitely it's something which contemporary philosophers are also talking about. Do you feel that video games give a unique perspective on different sorts of, a different viewpoint of philosophy? Or do you think it's just an untapped well that like, we've had books for hundreds of years and people have looked at different kind of authors in a certain way. Do you think that it's a unique sort of way of looking at philosophy with kind of the interactiveness of video games? Well, that's a good question. I think so my colleague at the Institute of Digital Games, Professor Stefano Gualeni, has been looking very much at the, at the idea of using games as philosophical thought experiments, of doing philosophy with games. I think that that's definitely an exciting uh, way in which you can use games, you know, create games as philosophical thought experiments, run out or test ideas by creating games that embody those ideas. Beyond that, my interest in games from a philosophical angle lies in the fact that they're a new kind of experience. We kind of are in agreement that there's something which separates games and the kind of experiences we have in games from the kind of experiences we have in the actual world. At the same time, to call these unreal or fictional doesn't quite cut it, right? Because we are really doing something. We are really spending time. It's a real experience rather it than is. something that's in your mind that you've just sort of... Exactly, right? It's, it's a virtual experience. A new category which might open up new questions or lead us to look at old philosophical questions differently or from a new angle. And that's what I find interesting. Mm -hmm. So you say you've made specific sort of games as thought experiments, but do you sometimes see like mainstream games having quite deep philosophical kind of viewpoints? Do you think they were kind of thought up with their authorial intent in them? Or do you think that's something that we've put upon these games? Or do you think it doesn't really matter? Well, um, so just to clarify, I did say that it was uh, my colleague, Professor yeah. Boleni, who has made philosophical games. I wouldn't lay claim to having done that myself. As regards, let's say, mainstream commercial games, 
I would say that there are some games which do have a philosophical intent or some kind of intellectual intent to convey some kind of idea. I think that's definitely the case, and I could name some mm-hmm. mainstream games which do this in interesting ways. Beyond that, though, like I'm not just interested in games which specifically say, all right, this is philosophy, I am making this particular point. Any kind of game, right? Even the m- dumbest, you know, let's say, in inverted commas, most mindless game can be interesting from a philosophical angle in terms of the kind of experience it's giving us. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about consciously conveying a philosophical message, but about using philosophy or using the kind of experiences that games give us to reconsider philosophical questions. Have you used feminist philosophy to analyze games at all? Only very little. I would say that that's not my um, speciality. Where I have, it's... Um, so the main kind of philosophical frameworks which I've been using in my research are philosophical aesthetics, phenomenology, and existentialism. And if I focus on the kind of phenomenological angle for a bit, that was what I was basing my doctoral research on a few years ago, where I looked at different ways in which playing with avatars and player characters can be understood through the idea of um, embodied phenomenology, right? through people like uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty from a philosophical angle. Within that angle, I did look at some um, feminist phenomenologists like um, Iris Marion Young, for example, talking about the different ways in which um, social constructions of gender shape our own perspectives of our bodies and the way in which, you know, social ideas of what it means to be a man or be a woman in a very traditional sense means that you inhabit your body in different ways. And going on from that, how does this translate to games? Like, do games, can we use games to explore gendered ways of embodiment? It's not something which I've explored to a huge degree, but it is an interesting question. So, for example, if I'm Super Mario in this experience, Mm -hmm. would you say that since you deal with what is real and transcendence, would you say that it's a transcendental experience for me to be Super Mario? In a way, well, I wouldn't necessarily use the word transcendental, but it is definitely... So, a lot of my research focuses precisely on this question of subjectivity and self and the way in which games let us play with being different subjects, being different selves. When you play as Mario, you don't stop being yourself, of course. You still know who you are, you still have that identity. But you are taking on a different set of bodily capabilities, right? You're taking on what is Mario. Mario is the ability to jump, the ability to run, the ability to pick up mushrooms and so on. And that shapes who you are in the game, right? You act a certain way because of who Mario is in the game and what the game lets you do as Mario. And that shapes the kind of being that you are in the game, even though you don't stop being yourself at the same time. Let's hear more about it. The article about Dr. Daniel Veller's research appeared in June 2018, the 24th issue of The Think magazine. Transcendence through play. Even though philosophers like Kant and Schiller of the aesthetic tradition never had the opportunity to troll some noobs in Call of Duty or slay a dragon in Skyrim, their views on the concept of play can be critical to our understanding of how the player relates to the game world. Dr. Daniel Vella explores the world of aesthetic and existential philosophers. Words by Jasper Skellikens. Professional philosophy is often imagined as a realm of musty rooms full of Delphic books and stuffy university professors in tweed jackets, or the future unemployed. Modern philosophy is a technocrat's game, with work in the field mostly done by researchers publishing in highly technical, peer-reviewed journals in specialised niches. The field of digital games is one of these niches, coming into its own as a fertile ground for philosophy, and the Institute of Digital Games of the University of Malta is keen to explore. Philosophy is key to analysing digital games, 
by giving us the tools to study the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality and existence. It lies at the heart of much of the work that the Institute of Digital Games does. Professor Gordon Kalia has worked with Ubisoft on game immersion. Dr. Stefano Golini explores the ethics of creating AI that is worthy of moral considerations. While working on a new game that plays with the concept of indexicality, the indexing of an object in context, together with Dr. Daniel Vella, he is now looking into the idea of existential projects in the works of Heidegger and Sartre, examining an individual's ability to project themselves into a certain kind of being. Vella's area of expertise is the examination of a player's relation to their game avatar. He is currently dissecting the philosophical notion of play and how various philosophers across the centuries have claimed that it allows the player to transcend beyond who they actually are in real life. Kind of like the magical time during childhood when our unbridled imagination could turn us into anything we wanted to be. To effectively dissect a video game, you have to be able to break it down into its component parts. The branch of philosophy referred to as ontology addresses what entities exist and how such entities may be grouped, related within a hierarchy and subdivided according to their similarities and differences. In a way, it can be considered the dictionary of philosophers, as philosophers come up with names for these entities in order to make referring to them easier. Applied to the study of digital games, it lets us draw the borderlines between the player and the avatar, between reality and the game world, and you'd be surprised how difficult it is to determine those borders. Studying the relationship between the player and the game world can teach us a lot about how games impact individuals, how to evaluate games critically, and even our own relationship with reality. After all, to make a good game, you need to know how your audience will interact with it. To evaluate a game, you need to understand how the parts interlink and agree on what to call them. To understand reality, you can observe phenomena that happen in a virtual environment and extrapolate from there. In his most recent research, Vela has mapped out a route that starts in concepts set out by aesthetic philosophers and then continues by reflecting on existentialist philosophers to finally arrive at a meaningful analysis of how an individual experiences play in a fictional game world. The map can then be used as groundwork for the understanding of how a player can be engaged in the game to take on a role of the avatar, and how the taking on of this new identity in the virtual world reflects back on their identity in the actual world. The start of Vela's path requires an understanding of aesthetics, the branch of philosophy that studies beauty and taste. It emerged in the 18th century with the seminal works Critique of Judgment by Kant and Letters of the Aesthetic Education of Man by Schiller. Aesthetics focuses on the study of beauty, which is understood not as being in the eye of the beholder, but rather as an objective judgment. Kant and Schiller concluded that beauty and freedom are intrinsically linked, although the particular relationship to play is mainly implied. It is worth following their logic on how beauty and freedom are connected because it is on the same crossroads that play finds itself. And this sense of freedom provides the foundations for existentialist philosophers and ultimately the work of Vela. Kant and Schiller see beauty as resulting from breaking the chain of cause and effect and having no motivation outside of itself. Kant argues that freedom is attained where reason overcomes the senses. The individual is satisfied in its own thinking regardless of the input provided by the senses and therefore it is free. Schiller sees it less as a victory of one sense over the other. Instead, he believes that freedom occurs where the rational and the sensual overlap. Normally, the rational would constrain the external impulses of the world by making the claim of caution. Do not climb up that tower, Etzo. You could plummet to your death. Or the external impulses would constrain the rational because they have no other choice. Oh, Etzo, you jumped. I guess we'll have to get a clean-up crew to clean up that splat you left behind. But when they are united in play... They cancel each other out, which leads to freedom, 
as the player is no longer imprisoned by cause and effect. While playing a game, you know that rationally, your actions will have particular effects, but the impact is no longer governed by necessity. Go ahead and jump from that tower into that haystack, Etzer. Existentialist Fink and Satra rework aesthetic dualism, rational versus physical, in existential terms. For the existentialist, the duality is only perceived. Individuals are able to take themselves as subject and make themselves the object, meaning they are able to step outside themselves and contemplate what they are doing from almost any external viewpoint. In this way, they are able to extend beyond themselves, allowing their consciousness to transcend their own material restrictions. Satra and Fink both explicitly acknowledge the importance of play. In Satra's view, during play, the individual is no longer determined by external reality, the sensual world, because, as a player, they have a freedom to set their own tasks, demands and expectations. The object the player is playing with still exists in external reality, but the act of playing with it makes it more than just the original object. Although a gamepad in a player's hand is still just a gamepad, it can for example, be a gun at the same time. Therefore, it can be argued to be more than just a gamepad. This leads us to Think and his views on the play world. A place where fictional actions are portrayed by actions in reality. The fictional action of shooting zombies in a game happens through the pushing of the R1 button on the gamepad. In the play world, the player becomes an imaginary character, one that is different from the player and hence allows the player to become someone else. This brings us back to that magical time of childhood where we are nothing but unbridled potential and nothing actual. As we grow, we're confronted with the fact that life is, spoiler alert, finite, and therefore, with every second that passes, the realms of possibility shrinks. In play, it is no longer necessary for the individual playing to be constrained by the rules governing their life, and the ever-decreasing realm of possibility. The play world becomes a place where the imaginary is placed inside the actual. The individual playing the game becomes both a player, who they are in reality, and a role, the character they are playing in the play world. To illustrate this point with an example, imagine you are playing at being a valiant knight defending your serfs on your manor from a gang of bandits. In this scenario, you might use a device with a motion sensor that will let you wield it as a sword to fend off the bandits. The device is real, but in the play world it is a knight's sword, which isn't real. In any case, you fend off the bandits' attack with skill and panache of a skilled swordsman, regardless of the fact that you've never held a blade in your hand. By taking on this role in the game, you have transcended yourself and become more than you are. Through play, you have become a valiant knight and a skilled sword fighter. This very transcendence is what Satra and Fink refer to as the freedom to be other than themselves. Hence, play is a route to freedom. Making a game without understanding how players interact with the play world is like navigating without a map in a foreign country. If you're lucky, you may eventually get to your destination, but you'll probably end up wasting a lot of time going around in circles. By dissecting the notion of play through the work of ascetics and existential philosophers, we gain a better understanding of how a player interacts with the game world and where that boundary lies. In the same vein as a writer who needs to know which words to use to tug at the heartstrings of their reader, a game designer has to understand which game mechanics they can use to tug at the heartstrings of the player. They need to understand how players will react when a certain game mechanic is used. Fully understanding this interaction can even make the dreaded QuickTime event the push this button or die quickly type event, an effective game mechanic because you can unlock how the player interacts with the game world and its rules. A quick time event for shooting a zombie would be yawn-inducing, but it might work for a particularly cinematic sequence where the designer wants to stretch the rules of the world. 
an individual playing a game is both themselves and someone else at the same time. They become the character, and by becoming the character, they transcend beyond themselves. They take on the goals, history, or traits of whomever they are playing as, and by doing so, they break reality's grip on the realm of possibility. Yes, Johnny, even you can become an astronaut, despite the fact that you haven't seen the night sky from your mother's basement since November. So even though the character in the game is performing the actions in the play world, the individual is also performing actions in reality. Whether that is pressing a button on a gamepad or swinging a device at imaginary bandits, they are still actively interacting through a real object with the game world. This type of detailed examination also has interesting implications regarding the effect of play on a gamer's psychology, beyond just game design. Take the effect of violent games on players. Since players feel that they are external observers and not their real selves when playing a game, violent video games do not have the same impact as violence itself. Individuals during play are still themselves. After all, people don't mutate into something else when they play a game. At the same time, they are not themselves. Within the play world, they take decisions they never would in reality. Few people would jump off a medieval tower into a haystack and expect to survive, but you as a character would. So, when you do take that leap of faith, you become more than your actual self at the press of a button. So, walk to the edge, push the D-pad forward, press L1 and X. Welcome back to The Rethink. We're here with Dr. Daniel Vela. We're talking about the philosophy of video games. So, do you think the onset of like Second Life and VR sort of technology has allowed for, I don't know, a unique look into like the human psyche with sort of developing more empathy, or do you think it's sort of gone the other way? You hear about like online trolls just sort of like without sort of having the safeguards of having to people see people face to face. Do you think it kind of, do we see the true face of people when they are free to kind of be whoever they want to be? All right, I'm, I'm not going to give you a yes or no answer to that. But I think you've mentioned two things, right? You've mentioned this kind of second life idea of, you know, the online space being this kind of safe space, this space where we can kind of live a new life, essentially. There is that discourse. You've also mentioned the kind of online troll or this kind of like question of online abuse and so on. And I think what links both of those perspectives is the sense of taking on a different kind of identity, right? In the positive and the negative examples that you've listed there, right? And this is something which is at the core of what interests me about digital games and what I've been researching also in the research which this article was about. What I find philosophically interesting about digital games and virtual worlds in general is the fact that when we take on a virtual, when we enter a virtual world, that is essentially what I've called the kind of nested subjectivity and the nested existence. You don't stop being who you are, your life goes on, this is a real thing that you're doing, but you're taking on a kind of new identity nested within your actual identity. You can use that as a means to, to explore perhaps a side of yourself which does not find a manifestation within the actual world. You can use that to consciously explore a way of being which is very different from who you normally are, right? If, maybe if you're normally a very quiet, introverted person, you might become a very extroverted person in an online world. You might explore being a different gender, a different ethnicity, a different kind of identity in whatever way we want to talk about that. And of course, that creates this duality, right? You, there's still the you that you are, but then there's also this entity that you're playing within the virtual world, within the game or the online space, whatever it might be. And then there's an interesting dialogue, right? There is something which well, I've called, you know, distribution of self and otherness within the self. Mm -hmm. right? This is you, but it's also not you. And what does that mean? So in the movie Avatar, we see a, a situation where a person who, is, who has a disability 
takes on a new identity and um, becomes this creature that is able-bodied and very, and very strong. At the same time, someone who is, for example, struggling with body image issues or anxieties uh, can look like a Barbie in a game. But uh, in the structured environment of digital games, we never see a person who has a disability and is still fine and is achieving his or her goals. We almost never see a person who deviates from uh, the Barbie uh, mm -hmm. body norms and is still fine and is achieving her goals. So what does it teach us philosophically then? Yeah, I think you're making some interesting points there. Uh, there is some social scientific research out there which has linked what's called the avatar self discrepancy in online world. So basically how different your avatar is from you to um, the degree of the satisfaction that users state with their own life. So basically users who stated that they were more dissatisfied with their own lives created avatars that were less like themselves, which is kind of intuitive when you think about it. Right? It's like, of course, if you're somehow not happy with yourself, you want to create an avatar that's different from you. Now, yes, the kind of flip side of that is that since we can use these games, these virtual worlds as ways of exploring, let's say, idealized versions of ourselves, then that is going to lead to a privileging of the kinds of identities which are socially coded as being more desirable. So yes, most people are going to choose to play attractive avatars. Most people are going to choose to play able-bodied avatars, right? strong avatars, and so on. I wouldn't say it's a blanket statement. There are definitely games which differ from that, right? Which give you disabled avatars, where you play as elderly people, where you play as people with a disability, where you play as um, transgender individuals, and so on. These don't tend to be very big budget mainstream games, but there are a number of more artistically oriented games which do explore those kinds of subjectivities. But definitely, yes, the more commercial the game, the bigger the game, that tends to kind of go towards more, you know, socially desirable and more hegemonic kinds of subjectivity. Uh, Collingwood described two different types of beauty and art in philosophy as sort of there's amusement art, which is just sort of escapism, which just allows you to retreat away from your normal life. And then there's like magic art, which transforms yourself. Do you think that video games have progressed from just that amusement phase into that magic art sort of phase, do you think? Do you think we're coming to mm. respect Maybe video games as an art? Oh, perhaps Maybe the other the way, other yeah. Way well, I'm not sure I would draw such a hard and fast distinction between those two categories. I think that's, that's going to be quite subjective on some level, right? Something which to me seems trivial might prove to be transformative for someone else, right? Or, or vice versa, depending on their personal background, depending on what they find meaningful. Definitely within game studies, there's been even, you know, back in 1998, Janet Murray was talking about transformation as one of the kind of specific qualities of interactive media. Or also in the 90s, um, Sherry Turkle was talking about online identities and the way in which they feed back to our actual identities. So that potential has been recognized for quite some time. I think to some degree, it's also at the core of the research which I've been talking about here. In this research and in my current application of aesthetic and existential philosophy to talking about digital games, I've been looking at Fink's idea of play and the philosopher Eugen Fink and how he talks about the importance of play. In play, he argues, we kind of step outside the self that we normally are, right? You've made certain choices in life, there, there have been certain conditions which you found yourself and that kind of has shaped you to be a certain individual. But in play, you're kind of free to explore a different kind of being. And I would like to consider digital games within that idea, right? We can use these as ways of exploring different ways of being, right? Being assertive, being passive, being at ease, being frightened, being vulnerable, 
being powerful, right? To me, that's what's interesting about digital games, these experiences they can give us of being otherwise and how that, then once we incorporate that back into our research, potentially that could be transformative. <laughs> and on that note, what do you think about the relationship between video games and imagination? Because my generation had access to The Sims, for example, as mm -hmm. a where you can build your virtual dolls and have them interact. And there seems to be less and less to imagine. And um, it might be the case that digital games are taking the space that used to be reserved for role-playing among children, which uh, require a lot of imagination. I think imagination is at play both if you're playing with a stick and if you're playing with a digital game, right? It's, the digital game gives you much more detail in terms of the props it's giving for your imagination, right? But you're still projecting yourself into this fictional world, or at least the game allows you to do that. I think in this regard, it's interesting. Like, if we stop looking at digital games in isolation and consider the fact that even now, right, when digital games are so culturally prevalent, we're seeing a massive increase in the popularity of board games, for example, which is also something that we look at. Um, we don't limit ourselves to digital games. Board games, analog games, um, tabletop role-playing, that is more popular now than ever. Um, so it's not an either-or thing. It's not like digital games kind of take over our capacity to imagine and other forms of play are no longer culturally present. I think that's very much not the case. So being in a, having a digital avatar and being in a video game setting allows sort of the player to disconnect from their own sense of duty that they may have in the real world and allow them sort of like a free reign to play as ever they want. Um, yes, but also no, in the sense like you can't do anything you want in a game. The game scholar Olilino talks about what he calls the gameplay condition, which is basically this condition where, well, you have to do certain things. If you don't, then it's game over, right? You might choose badly and that leads to a negative consequence in the game. So you are freely choosing to play a game rather than play a different game or do something else with your life. But once you are in that game, then you are conditioned to act in certain ways. You aren't absolutely free. So is there kind of some games which allow for ludonarrative dissonance? Is that, am I saying that correctly? Where you can yeah. play a game against the intended sort of, int like the intention of the game de developers. So you can sort um, of break the game and sort of enjoy kind of not playing it as and intended. So what, so what you're talking about there is uh, transgressive play or counterplay. And there's actually a lot of research on that by people like um, Alan Meads, Christina Jorgensen. Absolutely, yes. So there is the idea of the implied player, which a game scholar Espen Arsa talks about, for example. Right, The idea that a game is suggesting you should play it in this way. Mm. It's been designed, you jump over this block, you get a point. Yes, but of course you can decide to go against that. You can decide to you know, drive the wrong way in a racing game. You can decide to play Grand Theft Auto, but just be a tourist and walk around and take pictures of everything. So where do you think your research is going from there? And what are your next projects? As we're speaking, the current development of this is a lot of the research which has been discussed here is has been going into a book that I'm writing with my colleague, uh, Professor Gualeni, uh, called The Virtual Existentialism, which is about uh, well, applying existential philosophy to digital games and virtual environments in general. Right? What can the virtual teach us about existential philosophy and what can existential philosophy teach us about the virtual? So that is the kind of current culmination of this line of thinking in terms of our research. Thank you very much. It was uh, very interesting. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was all from Rethink for today. Tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUni on Instagram, or ThinkUniMalta on Twitter. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash ThinkUni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. 
your hosts, Daivara Pachkaita and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.